0: Welcome to the Belt and Road podcast, where we cover the latest news, research, and analysis on China's growing presence in the developing world. I'm your host, Eric Mike Serino, coming to you again today from Durham, North Carolina. And before we begin, of course, I'd like to remind everyone that not only are we just a podcast, but we also have an entire social media feed on Twitter and on Facebook. We are at Belt and Road Pod, where you can get all the latest updates, the news, the research and analysis has found. It's updated daily. So follow us at, at Belt and Road Pod. Well, in 2018 was a busy year where China and the U.S. both formulated two new development finance agencies. For China, there was the merging of the Ministry of Commerce and Ministry of Foreign Affairs, foreign aid wings that created the China International Development Cooperation Agency. And second, the U.S., through the BUILD Act that Congress passed, spawned the $60 billion International Development Finance Corporation that this October will overtake the Overseas Private Investment Corporation as a new, uh, as a new source of finance. The creation of USIDFC. U.S. IDFC is widely seen not as so much of a commitment for multilateral development financing, but as a counter to a rising China or China's Belt and Road Initiative. So what exactly are these organizations? Uh, what are their responsibilities? Uh, how can we think that they're going to act and what type of projects would they be financing? And given their domestic political economies from which they stem, can they really compete? To answer these and more, I'm so, so delighted today to have on the show Scott Wingo. Scott is a doctoral candidate in political science at the University of Pennsylvania, where he focuses on China's economic engagement in the developing world and why its modes of doing business are different from those used by Western governments, international organizations, and multinational corporations. He most recently published a great article that we tweeted as a must-read on the Center of Advanced China Research's website that was entitled Too Much Risk or Not Enough? New Development Finance Agencies in China and the United States. So, Scott, welcome to the Belt and Road podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Scott, briefly, we're going to start on the China side of the equation. Can you just describe briefly what the China International Development Cooperation Agency is?
1: Well, as you said, it's a new agency started April of last year, or announced then anyway, and it's not really fully operational yet. They're still in the setup phase, and it answers to the state council at the vice ministry level, and at that level is responsible for coordinating all Chinese aid activities. And that includes grants, zero interest loans, and concessional loans, or loans with relatively low interest rates and longer payback periods. And this is notable because China's aid system had been fairly fragmented before. Ministries of commerce, foreign affairs, some of the state-owned banks, the companies themselves, all had some degree of responsibility. And they're trying to streamline the process a little bit, is the short version.
0: Great. That's a wonderful synopsis. Um, And what problems was the uh, Chinese Communist Party looking that the CIDCA could address?
1: Well, the really short version is a lot of their companies were taking a lot of excessive risk abroad and they felt the need to rein them in. And I can give you a much longer version. And to do that, you kind of have to go back in history a little bit to China's domestic political economy. I would love a much longer version. Okay, I'll do that then. Um, going back in history, China was a purely state-led communist system, right? The banks existed to allocate taxpayer revenues to companies, but they weren't really expected to turn a profit. They were just kind of channels for money. mm mm-hmm. And over the years, they've tried to reform them such that they're expected to earn a profit, have their loans be paid back, but the process was never really fully completed. It kind of quit halfway. And so the Chinese banking sector, which, by the way, is still virtually all state-owned, still has a lot of non-performing loans, meaning loans that are past due and may or may not ever get paid back. What that means is that a lot of Chinese firms, and particularly the state-owned firms and the best-connected biggest firms, uh, when they go overseas, are able to gamble a lot on dicey projects because they know that the state-owned banks are going to have their back if the thing goes under. And so they've taken a lot of risk overseas. On a related note, I should also emphasize that in the modern era, the firms are really, really strong relative to the government. Uh, If you talk to people in the Chinese regulatory apparatus, they feel pretty outgunned. China has not nearly as many personnel at its regulatory offices in Beijing and a fraction of as many personnel as most embassies from developed countries would have, even from, say, like a mid-sized European country, Mm -hmm. and this overseeing much larger volumes. And so these firms, which are flush in cash and have a pretty strong insurance policy to do whatever they feel like, don't really have a whole lot of people overseeing them. And so the new agency is largely aimed at trying to rein them in a little bit. I was going to say this is really, really important given some recent trends involving firms getting into trouble in some of their dealings overseas, the so-called ESG issues, environmental social governance. In environment and social areas, firms have gotten in trouble for polluting maybe more than some of the rivals There are some arguments over labor standards in Chinese companies, although the evidence in that area is kind of mixed. And the biggie that the government in Beijing seems to be worried about is governance or corruption. There have already been a few notable corruption scandals involving Chinese firms overseas. In Malaysia, it appears that the local government was skimming some off the top from a major railway project. There have been a couple of issues in Kenya with both local officials and Chinese company officials being wrapped up in various forms of graft. And what this means is that the entire Belt and Road project starts to get kind of a bad name. China's approach before was to say, you know, if some of these countries locally have corruption, it's not our issue. We're not going to get involved. And what they're realizing is If they don't exercise oversight over their firms and these firms engage in some questionable behavior, there can be some global blowback in a way such that a lot of other developing countries are going to be afraid to do business with these companies.
0: And that's what we've seen, I mean, in Malaysia, in Sri Lanka, in Cameroon, and uh, I mean, so many different countries where China as a whole, even if it ends up being a Chinese state-owned enterprise that's doing their own backdoor dealings with some local elites, Right. it gets it gets brought as China, the state doing this when in the sense, I mean, they're giving the money, they're supporting uh-huh. it, there isn't the governance standards and the lending. So there is culpability on Beijing's end. And when the Belt and Road is supposed to be partially a uh, a soft power play, not only with in Confucian institutes, but here's money, here's road, uh, here's public goods, um, as a way of garnering favorable, I guess, thoughts and soft power towards China. If then it gets brought into seeing as China enriching local elites locally, you, you're kind of losing that game. So, right? You, so you saw on the ground. We're doing fieldwork in, in Beijing that actually speaking with state representatives in Beijing, that CIDCA was actually trying to respond to this governance issue and the environmental social issues like they were out, out there stating it, that that's what part of what, what the purpose of this organization is for.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that the expectations are quite as high on the environmental and social fronts, but especially governance seemed to be a really big issue, the so-called ethics trap. You know, if one of our executives, unbeknownst to us, does something sketchy overseas, it'll generate some bad press for us. They're very focused on that. Very. Um, Yeah. And in particular, I think another this is a related point. Mm -hmm. Another point that they're beginning to wake up to is the fact that getting in with a certain administration in a country does not mean that they're set there forever. Changes in administration and elections have gotten in the way of some of these projects. And again, I'm thinking of Malaysia, mm-hmm. where Mahatir made a comeback at the ripe old age of 95 or 96, I believe, partially over frustration with corruption generally, and in some cases involving Chinese firms. They tend not to think about changes in government a lot. Uh, You know, the same mistake the U.S. tends to make looking overseas, we kind of project a multi-party democracy onto everyone. They do a little bit of that as well and don't think about countries as having more than one party or rotating leadership. And when there are corruption scandals, rotations in leadership can become a really big deal. So they're very focused on keeping some of these scandals from emerging in the future and maintaining relationships that lasts through changes in administration. That's really fascinating. So what was the
0: importance of Xi Jinping appointing Wang Xiao Tao as the inaugural chairman of the CITCA?
1: Well, Wang Xiao Tao was both a really likely and a really unlikely pick for the job for different reasons. I'll start with the things that make him a fairly obvious candidate for the job. He was a career official for 30-odd years since the 80s with the National Development and Reform Commission, the NDRC, which is China's mega economic and environmental planning agency. It's kind of like an economic Swiss army knife. They handle infrastructure investments, incoming and outgoing FDI. They handle environmental pollution, some agricultural issues. They're they're really, really strong. And... They're historically basically domestically focused with one exception, and that's regulating flows of investments coming in and out of the country. And Wang Xiaotao, when he was vice chair of the organization from 2014 to 18, handled those inflows and outflows, which is notable because of what happened during that period. The Chinese stock market crashed in 2015. Right, And in the wake of that crash, a lot of businesses started doing things like buying hotels and sports teams (laughs) and casinos and these kind of frivolous investments, especially in wealthy countries that appeared to just be an excuse to get money out of the country as the stock market was faltering. And Wang was at the helm of one of the organizations involved in trying to rein this in. So, in that light, he's a really obvious candidate for trying to rein in the excessive activities overseas of various Chinese firms. But he's also a really unlikely candidate in another way, and that has to do with the politics of the NDRC, of which he was a part for so long, in the context of Xi Jinping's China. Uh, Xi has not always been very friendly to the NDRC. He sees them as kind of an excessively entrenched bureaucracy. They're very set in their ways. They're slow moving. He sees them as kind of an obstacle. Mm-hmm. And he started to centralize power upwards away from them and toward leading small groups, which are groups of two or three people, typically highly placed officials who run things at she's behest without a whole lot of bureaucratic slowdown, not a lot of regulatory burden. And he's also delegated some of NDRC's former responsibilities in areas like agriculture and the environment to other ministries lately. So the fact that in the midst of all this NDRC hating, he picks a career NDRC guy for a fairly important new job is kind of odd. And I think it shows a couple of things. One, that He's really, really serious about trying to rein in some of these firms doing business overseas and is willing to give some ground on another priority, reining in the NDRC to make it happen. And two, and I haven't really touched on this yet, there's kind of some institutional dysfunction with – I don't want – maybe dysfunction is too strong a word, but some institutional conflict between the groups which have historically administered Chinese aid Mm – Uh, historically it's been run by significantly the ministry of commerce and the ministry of foreign affairs. And as the name sounds, commerce is really concerned with turning a profit. Foreign affairs is about winning friends and they really don't get along very well. People in commerce will say that foreign affairs just wants to waste a bunch of money on loss-making projects. People in foreign affairs say that commerce is too close with the business people and can't see the bigger foreign policy pictures, and they're frequently at loggerheads, which means that if you're a company, you just go with whichever one seems to want to bankroll your project and use it to ram pretty much anything through. And so the pick for an NDRC person And keeping in mind that the NDRC has not been super involved in Chinese aid historically, it kind of feels like a way of getting a third party in to mediate above foreign affairs and commerce. Um, trying to sidestep that beef and let it calm down for a little bit. What kind of instruments or apparatus,
0: or is there going to be, is there more money that's being put to CIDCA? Is there a a regulatory ability? Is there a a larger staff? Um, You know, I heard something about how there supposedly will be CIDCA staff within each embassy across at least Belt and Road countries. I don't know if that's true. Do you know, do you have any more detailed information as to how CIDC will Be able to accomplish any of these goals.
1: I can tell you what's in the text of the law that was passed, and what I've gotten from talking to people. What actually happens in practice? It's going to take a couple years before we really know. Of course, but in preliminary terms, they're talking about beefing up the staff of Sidca, especially in Beijing. But also, there are provisions in the text of the law that say that they will have. One, authority to oversee virtually all deals overseas, and two, the right to carry out inspections at embassy sites and investment sites. Now, I didn't get the sense that meant that there would be people on the ground permanently stationed at embassies. If that happens, my guess is it'd be a while because they just don't have the staffing levels yet to do Do it. it. I, I don't know. Maybe in the long term it can yeah. happen, though. In traditional fashion, the text of the law is only a little bit of an indication of what will happen <laughs> in Chinese politics. There is going to be a little wiggle room for innovation as time goes on. I am not totally sure yet.
0: Okay, and that, yeah, that's about what I guess we could expect. At the, and now, seeming it's not an operational <laughs> organization yet, and also Chinese law or policy yeah. or initiatives, including the Belt and Road Initiative itself, uh, was never a laid-out plan. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's move on to the American side now. So, you know, I think the creation of the United States International Development Finance Corporation is one of the most interesting and least talked about stories of 2018. It's maybe notable because of how many other terrible and awful stories happened in 2018 in uh, American domestic politics. And also, it was pretty well covered in our at least sphere of people who would be listening to the show. But can you go into a little bit about the Build Act and the creation of the International Development Finance Corporation?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're right in that it's one of the bigger, more overlooked stories of 2018. Now, given some of the sordid headlines we've had over the past year, you know, a lot of things get buried. But, you know, as I did for China, I want to go back in time a little bit on the US side to really explain how this creature came to be born at this particular junction in history. The U.S., like a whole lot of Western countries, used to be fairly involved in building infrastructure in developing countries. And I'm thinking back during Mm -hmm. the Cold War. But a couple things happened such that we really aren't anymore. One, the Latin American debt crisis hits in the 1980s. Mexico defaults in 1982, and some other countries follow suit significantly because they went into debt from the World Bank and private sector to build up industrial capacity using... You know, kind of a state planning model and defaults on a lot of these loans scared some people in Western establishments away from providing big infrastructure loans because they decided the risk was a little higher than they realized. Then the real nail in the coffin came with the fall of the Berlin Wall the U.S. and others had been kind of frightened into giving money to developing countries because they knew the Soviets would if they didn't. And once the Soviets were gone, there's no more competition and they can kind of dictate terms. And so in the 90s, the U.S. and a lot of Western countries to varying extents retreated to focusing more on health and education and technical cooperation to improve governance, but not doing a whole lot in the way of infrastructure. And that Pattern basically held up until very recently with really the decline, let's call it what it is, in Sino US relations. A lot of people in the US capital started becoming nervous about what China has been doing for a good decade plus at this point, building infrastructure in developing countries. And in particular, they got very nervous about the fact that the US is pretty far behind in this area. And so the BUILD Act, which is a pretty catchy acronym for better utilization of investment leading to development, is a bill aimed at bolstering the U.S.'s presence in this area.
0: And it was passed in a very bipartisan
1: fashion. I can't remember the vote count, but in... I think it's 92 to 6 or ninety-three six in the Senate. The House, I couldn't tell you, but it was... I crunched the numbers. It was over 90% yes votes in the House as well, which doesn't happen these days. No. I mean, <laughs> not, not at no. all. So the, the fear of China uh, can bring out
0: bipartisanship. So what will the International Development Finance Corporation be able to do? What, what I know has taken over OPIC, um, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. I mean, the
1: biggest, most immediate difference, I would say, is that it doubles the cap on outstanding assets. OPIC, the predecessor organization, was capped at $29 billion of assets on the books. Which is a lot of money to most of us, but in development finance terms, when you're looking at the sums coming out of China, it's really not that much. And so the cap has now been raised to $60 billion, which is still lower than China. But I mean, it's a 100% jump almost instantaneously. So that's the biggest change. The other big difference that's been getting a lot of attention is the authorization of the organization to take direct equity positions actually hold shares of up to 30% of a project's value. So they'll never be majority shareholders, but enables a lot of joint ventures. Now, this could hypothetically be with companies in the host country or host governments, or a lot of the noise coming out of think tanks has been speculating that it'll be joint ventures with companies from partner countries, and thinking particularly Europe, Japan, South Korea, etc. And you know, there's some good and some bad that comes with this. The good news is that equity does not come with a lot of the repayment issues that have plagued some Chinese deals that have been fueled by debt. And so in an era where a lot of people are nervous about the debt trap, so to speak, you know, Chinese companies will be coming for your assets if you don't pay up. Equity seems like a kinder alternative. On the other hand, and this is where I'm a little more skeptical of it, equity investments work a lot better. In markets with strong legal systems there's a long literature on this in political science and economics showing that you know equity investments can be pretty complicated and they make a lot more use of the judicial system than say a debt contract which basically says pay me this much on this date like there's not that much you can argue about which works okay in a middle income country like say a mexico or a thailand but in a country with weak institutions it's harder to do and so the critique of OPIC was that it focused too much on middle-income countries. USIDFC is saying they're going to focus more on lower-income countries as well. I think if they do it, it'll have to be through the debt component, that debt and guarantees, which are still 65% of their portfolio.
0: Do you, do you know anything about like the financing percentage that like a US IDFC could give because, you know, oftentimes it's comparative, you know, the one trillion Belt and Road Initiative, which it hasn't been one trillion yet, but who knows when that date's going to be. But thus far, you know, XM CDB since 2013, best estimates is like around 300 billion, maybe 250 billion. It's
1: not small. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's yeah, certainly a large number, but also taking in accord, like over majority of those are EPC contracts where XM's putting up. 75, 85% of the entire project financing where UFIDC money right. could go theoretically. I know many OPIC projects, they're funding, you know, 15% then there's other private industry and private financing that comes in with it. And it's like a support mechanism to support American private industry to go out. So 60 billion could potentially travel further.
1: Um, right. Am I right. right with my assumptions? Yeah. Yeah. That's the hope. Well, I can tell you the math that's written into the bill Up to 35% of U.S. IDFC can be devoted to equity positions, and each of those equity investments is capped at 30% of project value, meaning minimum 70% is held by other investors, be it U.S. private firms or others. Oh, that's one of the other differences I forgot to mention. Whereas OPIC required American corporate nationality, uh, U.S. IDFC strongly encourages it. But leaves a little bit of wiggle room, which would seem to me to be an opening for, you know, partner country companies to get involved. Now, as to your point on the so-called crowding in of private investment, I think that is one of the big goals. The U.S. has firms that are capable of doing these types of projects, but because they don't receive a lot of support, they're a lot more risk averse than the Chinese companies, which, you know, if a project goes bust. um. The ch- whatever the Chinese equivalent is of Uncle Sam will be there to bail them out. And <laughs> U.S. companies historically don't really have that. And so what U.S. IDFC will do is provide some insurance policies, loans, loan guarantees, and so on to make them feel a little bit safer. Now, the devil is kind of in the details here. Um, one constraint that U.S. IDFC is going to face is that they have to be revenue neutral meaning they have to break even basically in a year. And what that means, one, it's a positive for us in that the U.S. budget deficit has been going for a while now. There are some reasonable arguments against putting more money into an overseas program. That being said, the Chinese are willing to lose money. Now, they've gotten less willing to lose money over time, but a lot of their projects either aren't profitable or don't turn profitable mm-hmm. for you know maybe 10 years, isn't crazy to think you know, maybe a railroad that becomes an economic lifeline for a country that takes, you know, five to 10 years to facilitate the creation of an ecosystem of industry that really makes it profitable. I don't think the new organization is really going to be positioned to do that because of some of the greater demands on profitability. But what it will do is shorter term, easier bets you know, projects that are kind of profitable and will turn a profit within a few years, but the private sector wouldn't pay attention to otherwise, some of these borderline cases it could do.
0: So looking at USIDFC, you know, how can it compete or how will a profile look different from the major Chinese lenders like XM or China Development Bank? Well, in a couple
1: of different ways. I think the biggest one is that their risk and loss tolerance is still going to be higher than Chinese firms are, I mean. You know, there's a lot of work coming from really high profile Chinese authors, like say, Justin Yifutlin, the former chief economist of the World Bank, talking about how China's whole approach is through so-called loss leader projects, building infrastructure that might not be profitable for a while, but that has a net benefit for society. You know, say like a public transit system that's just barely cranking even, but does enable a lot of people to get to work in the morning and enables them to take home a paycheck and pay for housing and so on um the US IDFC is going to have a harder time with these longer term kind of borderline profitable projects because it's under a few constraints one it has not to be profitable but to break even fiscally has to be revenue neutral which means that its latitude for taking losses for a few years before something turns around is just not as wide and two because USIDFC is a little more private sector facing, uh, and the private sector has historically not been all that interested in building big infrastructure projects in low income countries. This is what happened to Power Africa, the Obama administration's initiative to electrify Africa. They had a hard time getting companies to sign up. I think USIDFC might fall prey to that a little bit. What it's more likely to do is to go into middle income countries and go into utilities or even somewhat more profitable sectors there and help build them up. But in low-income countries and in sectors that are less profitable, especially a lot of utilities, it's going to have a steeper hill to climb. And, you know, there's some good and some bad here. It means that it's easier on the U.S. budget, which in the age of deficits is a big deal. It's safer. It's less likely to get the U.S. in trouble from, you know, say a deal gone bad call for Venezuela for China. That's not going to happen with the U.S. IDFC. But at the same time, these big moonshot deals that you know can really transform a country or be a total disaster are gonna come out of USIDFC. So something like what's going on in Ethiopia, where a lot of Chinese money is coming in and fueling a lot of high-speed growth, I'm not sure that could come out of USIDFC because the risk profile would just be too high for a project like that.
0: It's interesting, as somebody who generally supports fostering private capital to gain more infrastructure win-win situations from American firms in middle and lower income countries. The Build Act seemed to be a big win, but it's doing nothing as to its stated intention of countering China in any sort of
1: measurable point. Except or or do you say that would be? I in certain countries it might I mean, there are conditions involved in adherence to, uh, say, trade agreements, uh, labor standards, environmental standards, which, you know, there's a smaller subset of countries is just not going to be in compliance. And I'm thinking somewhere like Venezuela, the U.S. is just not going to compete. And maybe we shouldn't. No, (laughs) I mean, there are reasons that a lot of organizations avoid these countries. And China will probably continue to have a monopoly there. However, in the much larger pool of countries that are not going to be disqualified. I do think it'll compete just for different types of projects. China is willing to do these very large projects, which are a little higher risk, which as US IDFC is a little safer, maybe not as transformative, but also less downside. And if you're a developing country leader, I think you could use these two in conjunction with one another. Maybe use China for your big, bold vision that you know is bold enough that it makes people nervous. Whereas for your easier, short-term goals, maybe US IDFC or the World Bank or a lot of European organizations are probably better bets. Yeah, I wouldn't really see them as indirect direct competition so much because the nature of funding is so different. Lastly,
0: two people in which we've spoken to in in, in Beijing um, or in China in general. Have they had any response to uh, not only the creation of IDFC, but also in kind of tandem with that, you know, Bolton's speech on America's new position in Africa? And uh, oh, yeah have, have you have you had any
1: or heard any response within Beijing within policy circles? Only in passing. I mean, to be honest, people would start to ask me about it more than anything. Um, but I think they're kind of cautiously optimistic. You know, the U.S. hasn't been all that involved in development finance for a long time. And for a long time, they were pushing for either some sort of trilateral cooperation or greater U.S. involvement here. And I think they're cautiously optimistic in Beijing that this might be a turning point for the U.S., but they're also not really sure what to make of it. They're kind of waiting and seeing. Now, in developing countries, other than China, I mean, the recipient countries, I have a much weaker sense. I just haven't talked to as many people there. But typically, they want more options on the table. I mean, nobody wants to be over-reliant on one source of capital. And so they're also kind of cautiously optimistic. I mean, if the U.S. is going to start providing a little more funding, it's good for them. It gives them one more source of capital. Maybe a few more projects get built. Uh, However, I don't think they want to take for granted that it really materializes yet And so if a couple of early projects come through and, you know, the ball starts rolling, I think there will be a little more enthusiasm. So far, people are just kind of shrugging their shoulders and waiting.
0: Great. Well, Scott, stick around for recommendations. It's been a really wonderful conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you. appreciate you having me on the show.
0: We've been talking with Scott Wingo. He's a doctoral candidate in political science at the University of Pennsylvania, focusing on China's economic engagement in the developing world and its modes of business and how they're different from Western governments, international organizations, and multinational corporations. His most recent piece we talked about was Too Much Risk or Not Enough, New Development Finance Agencies in China and the United States, which was on the Center for Advanced China Research's website. I'll have it posted in the show notes. So, Scott, Uh, Do you have any recommendations for us? It's going to be about Belt and Road or fun or otherwise.
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, Yeah, there are a couple. I would, Nadege Roland, a week or two ago, had a piece in Foreign Affairs about, I think she called it the backlash to the backlash to the Belt and Road, about how a lot of countries are now having some doubts about the Belt and Road because of the scandals that have emerged lately, but that you shouldn't count out. Uh, the Belt and Road as an initiative because the Chinese government is adjusting to it and trying to correct course. Uh, I think it's worth a read. Um, it you know, probably tells us a lot about the trajectory of what is to come in Chinese development finance.
0: Great. I'll certainly put that in the show notes. Uh, my recommendation for the week from the, the journal Asian Survey from 2017 is from Uh, Liu Chixian and Cai Chongming, uh, which is the dual role of cadres and entrepreneurs in China, the evolution of managerial leadership in state monopolized industries. It's just a great, rather modern uptake about the role of cadre promotion system and the dual roles of being party leaders and and political control, but also market entrepreneurs at uh, central state-owned enterprises in China. And on a less academic note, Uh, this last week has been very gloomy in Durham. I know up north it's been so much colder. Uh, so I moved here from St. Petersburg, Florida, which is a beautiful city that many people haven't heard of. Uh, If you're familiar with North Carolina, it's kind of the Asheville of Florida. It's a funky little, uh, artistic place on the beach that's on a peninsula that, uh, isn't overgrown by high rises or terrible sprawl like so much of Florida is. And so it's got beautiful old neighborhoods, wonderful beer and beautiful weather. So I kind of miss my old home of St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, Legion Airline has cheap flights all throughout the Northeast, so highly recommend visiting. Well, Scott, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show again. It was wonderful having you. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Belt and Road podcast. Again, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Belt and Road Pod, where we update the latest academic articles, news articles, and whatever other analysis on the Belt and Road on China's growing presence in the developing world. Catch you next time.